when WebAssembly was created, it was supposed to be a compiled target where you could compile your favorite programming language and then execute it inside of a web browser. This made it possible for developers to choose a programming language like C++ for compute-intensive applications. Fermion is taking WebAssembly to the cloud. With Fermion Cloud deploying and managing cloud-native WebAssembly applications become a breeze. Matt Butcher is a CEO at Fermion Technologies and he joins us today. This episode is hosted by Mike Bifulco. Follow Mike at mikebifulco.com. Matt, I'm super happy you're here today. Um, nice to meet you, Matt. How are you doing? Uh, good, good. I feel like, uh, you know, I'm coming out of sort of like the post-conference season haze. And so this morning was the first morning I woke up and said, hey, I'm ready to go again. <laughs> I'm I'm a human being again. <laughs> and that was before coffee. <laughs> oh, perfect. Right on. Yeah, I'm, I'm fairly caffeinated myself over here, too. And actually on the end of a pretty long conference season, too, I think I had half a dozen in the last two months or something like that. Yeah, it's uh, been busy this year. It's been great to see people again, but I, I forgot that I need to rejuvenate at the end of that period, right? Definitely. Yeah. And what, what a better way to celebrate that than by having a long conversation about work anyway. You know, but you'll never know whether I'm wearing my pajamas. So I'm okay <laughs> with that. <laughs> that. Audio is perfect for that. That's right. <laughs> um, so Matt, tell me a little bit about yourself. Why don't, why don't you tell me about sort of your history uh, before getting to Fermion, what you did, where what you've worked in, where you came from, things like that. I think uh, I am one of those people who's fortunate enough to really sort of grow up in open source. Uh, my first computer job was in high school. I actually actually stumbled into it on accident. I thought I was going to be mowing the lawn, uh, and instead of ended up doing getting my first introduction to programming, and uh, and kind of immediately discovered you know Linux and GCC and some of these early you know at the time uh, you know early open source and free software tools, and that really sort of ignited a passion for me. That's it's been the thread through my career. You know, I went from there into like you know standard software web development and then from there into content management systems and cms is actually what led me into cloud um i was working for hp cloud and came in to do their drupal websites i was a huge drupal fan for a long time still i'm a drupal fan just not a drupal developer anymore um and uh and as I was working on these websites for uh, you know, OpenStack, you know, HP's version of OpenStack and stuff like that, I started getting deeper and deeper into the OpenStack world. And I was totally hooked. I, I mean, uh, it was a, a game changer for me. I was so, you know, having grown up in the install from CD onto my laptop mentality of how an operating system and a piece of hardware work together. Uh, when I discovered the sort of, when, when, when the mental switch flipped of going, oh, there is not a one-to-one -one relationship between an operating system and a piece of hardware. It was one of those moments where I went, oh, this is it. This is the, I'm so excited, right? And then I just dove in. Uh, and that was sort of where, how cloud became a real passion point for me. I went from HP cloud, which, you know, contrary to our vision, didn't really break into the top three. Um, I went from there into IoT, where I did the cloud side of consumer-based Internet of Things, and that was that was a lot of fun. I went from there to a company called Deus that was building an open source alternative to Heroku. That was kind of the way we talked about it ourselves, uh, you know, and we were big on the container ecosystem and packaging applications into containers. And that was how I kind of stumbled into Kubernetes. Uh, you know, this, this, we were using Fleet as our orchestrator at the time, which uh, this is one of CoreOS's old, old projects. I don't, it hasn't been maintained in many years, 
but along comes this this Google project that started with a K that we couldn't pronounce, and uh, we started looking at it and going, "Oh, this is this is really cool. This is the future." So that got got us into Kubernetes. Uh, that was you know out of that uh, created a project called Helm that was the package manager for Kubernetes, and then Microsoft came and acquired us. Uh, and and my five years at Microsoft were some of the best of my career. I, I thought it was a great, I ended up in, my team ended up in, I think, the ideal situation inside of Microsoft, where we were encouraged every day to work on open source and to contribute things upstream. Uh, and that, that really kind of the, the glimpse behind the curtain you get when you work at a place like Microsoft inside of Azure and can see the, how the wheels turn for uh, compute and networking and everything down from that to like .NET and Oculus. I mean, uh, sorry, a uh, HoloLens. Whoops, that was a. <laughs> it was, it was, it was a great experience, and I learned so much. Uh, and that's kind of where we where we started to say, you know, there might be a hook here into another kind of compute. And ultimately, that's what led us into WebAssembly, and then on from there into creating Fermion. We hit our one-year anniversary, birthday, whatever you call it, uh, at the beginning of November, and uh, it has been just an absolutely exhilarating year. Wow, that is incredible. That's quite a story. You've touched basically every part of everything. Uh, <laughs> as I can tell, you know. And that was when I invented my seventh programming language, right before reinventing TCP/IP. Now, I've I've never been a good enough developer to do either of those things. <laughs> <laughs> well, the nice thing about open source is that we get to stand on the shoulders of giants and and benefit from people who are smarter than us in other spaces. So uh, that's super cool. I am um, I want to talk about Fermion, and I want to get there, but I did some sleuthing of your um, CV kind of before we uh, chatted here. And I wanted to talk a little bit about, it looks like you've written quite a few books. Uh, so you're author of quite a few things. It, it looks like your work has been um, spanned quite a few um, sort of topic areas. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about your authoring? <laughs> yeah, I think in a sense, uh, the, the books end up being sort of autobiographical in hindsight. It's like, oh, so back then, you know, uh, I think the first one I wrote was on OpenCMS, which is a Java-based content management system. Uh, still going strong now, even though I think that the, the project is still going strong now. Uh, it's based out of Elka uh, in Germany. And it was a it was a fun CMS system to work on. And I was uh, kind of one of the earlier users. And uh, that was uh, the first CMS I think I, I really got into and opened up that whole CMS pathway in my career. Uh, oddly enough, I also ended up working on LDAP a lot, uh, Lightweight Directory Access Protocol. Uh, the, the, the only famous LDAP implementation left is Active Directory. But at that time, uh, you know, Open LDAP was a, was a mature project that just didn't have a whole lot of documentation. And I was using it a lot. And I saw this opportunity to, to write a book. The publisher packed, agreed. And um, to this day, oddly enough, the book Mastering Open LDAP is the best-selling book I ever wrote. Now, best-selling, keep in mind, this is a very modest metric. Uh, <laughs> uh, one, one does not uh, retire based on tech writing alone. <laughs> but, uh, but that one was kind of like a surprise thing because I thought of it as like, oh, this is a niche technology that uh, not a lot of people care about. And that was true. But in, as a result, uh, 
a lot of people found this to be a valuable book because there wasn't a lot of uh, other material available. And then you can kind of see I went into the Drupal years, wrote a couple of books. The most fun, I co-wrote a book about learning uh, Drupal 7 with like all the people that I love to work with. Uh, that was a ton of fun. Uh, and then I don't, I don't know, I'm going to lose track here. I did a little bit of JavaScript and then went on and, and wrote about Go for a while. And then the strangest of all time and likely that, well, no, that's not true. I've had two very strange book publishing ones, but one was writing a book about Helm because that was like all these other ones were basically me fanboying about open source projects that I loved and why I love them. And then all of a sudden I'm writing a book about something I wrote and it felt like you get this sort of like, odd self-conscious it's just like i can't say anything nice about this project because i wrote it and also i know about all the warts in here and do i tell people about the warts or do i like try and do the highlights and uh it was fun to write it with matt farina who's a longtime friend and josh delitsky who was at the time one of the newer helm maintainers uh and that book ended up being a, a lot of fun and then there was the Illustrated Children's Guide to Kubernetes, which, you know, it's like, yeah, I wrote nine really serious books and a dissertation in philosophy, but will forever be known as the guy who, uh, you know, created the giraffe and the, the zebra for CNCF. Um, but that one was actually, honestly, that was also the most fun uh, to see people's faces light up over something like that. You know, that's pretty much invaluable. Yeah, well, I, I want to be the first to thank you because I think as someone who's uh, a bit of a um, uh, a caveman when it comes to understanding Kubernetes, I have a bit of a bedraggled like uh, approach to trying to get anything done with that that sort of infrastructure tooling. Uh, and having a uh, children's guide in an illustrated manner that I could digest is definitely a useful thing to have. Uh, and also helps like one of the problems I think that we face as engineers and people building complex products is that you need to be able to explain it to everyone. Uh, on some level, because you should be able to explain the value to a business stakeholder just as well as like the engineers who are in the weeds who are going to benefit from the thing. Yeah, the the origin the origin of that book is is deeply rooted in exactly what you said there. Uh, you know, we were at Deus and we had an all company meeting, and the. Uh, the CTO came up to me and said, well, you know, you've been pushing this whole pivot to Kubernetes thing. Uh, so I scheduled you with a half an hour of time to, to introduce the entire company to Kubernetes. And I said, oh, so all the engineers are going to be there? And he said, yeah, and sales and marketing and finance. I think some of the finance people were there. I'm like, okay, all right. Uh, when am I going to do this? He said, right after lunch. And I'm like, everybody's going to be falling asleep. So uh, after a couple of really bad false starts with bad block diagrams and stuff, I took some of my kids' stuffed animals and took pictures of them and uh, and put together you know, what a, a slide deck based on stuffed animals that, that I called at the time the Illustrated Children's Guide to Kubernetes, even though there were no illustrations. Um, and, you know, marketing was there. And Karen Chu, who was in the marketing department at Deus, saw this and was like, no, we could do this for real. This is really useful and helpful. And so really, you know, I wrote the rough draft. It was Karen Chu who uh, took it from there and turned it into something real. And it was, again, one of those surreal moments when I first got a physical copy of a professionally illustrated version of a story that I had, you know, put together to, to try and explain to people after lunch what, what a Kubernetes is. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I feel like that's one of those things that is sort of um, notoriously complex and difficult to understand. And like the, the most common question I think I see on the internet is what is it and do I need it? Uh, you know, and usually that's from people who've spent a few months trying to make 
Kubernetes work for their, you know, whatever it is project. Like it's, it's a very interesting challenge. And, and one of those things that can be, it's a bit like, um, gosh, I don't know, organic chemistry, something you might study in high school. It's like, I don't know if you're not really far down the line here, you may not understand it at all, but if you can simplify the explanation, uh, you know, it, it makes consuming that knowledge and, and benefiting from it easier for everyone involved. I, I often think that if I tried to learn Kubernetes freshly right now, I would not have the uh, gumption, I guess, to 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 do the work and buckle down and really understand what it does. It has gotten much more complex over time. Uh, but I was fortunate to be there early enough that and and in that right environment, right? We we were, we had built a pass. We knew the concepts well enough to to see why Kubernetes was groundbreaking and and why we needed it. Um, but I, I, it, honestly, that it means a lot to me to hear somebody say, uh, "This helped me understand it." Because I, again, like I'm, like I'm saying here, I would have had a really hard time uh, picking it up now, and knowing that people find that valuable, in addition to entertaining, is <laughs> is really nice. It, it gets both things done. Uh, we, we actually just mentioned the the sort of conference circuit. Um, I was at a conference last week, actually, in North Carolina, here in Raleigh, uh, called All Things Open. An open I was conference. there too. Oh, no kidding. I'm sure we passed by each other in the hallways. Uh, I was there for Scott Hanselman's keynote uh, where he talked about writing and the the benefit of writing down things that you know. And I think uh, as someone who is such a proliferate author, I think you've accomplished this really well. But the TLDR of that entire keynote was sort of like, if you keep your knowledge in your brain, only, only you benefit from it. And if I asked you for help and you taught me directly, only you and I benefit from it. But then if you write it down, and put it somewhere public where the world can see it. If any other person benefits from it, then you've doubled your impact on that thing and it scales up from there. Uh, so, you know, for, for people who are getting into writing or starting to figure out how to put their knowledge into the world, like put it somewhere with a public URL, put it in words that you can understand, that you think other people can understand and just get it out there. Uh, the benefits will certainly cascade from there. And oftentimes it's the 500 or 300 word blog post that solves your problem. You know, you're Googling something and, and banging your head against your desk. And then you find that post that somebody just probably took 10 minutes to write down. Hey, I ran into this problem. I couldn't find any solutions. I tried several things. Here's the thing that I found that works. Uh, those those can end up being invaluable and e- easy to write, you know, and, and you, I think... Scott Hanselman of all people is is the living breathing exemplar of how to how to do this right but you know oftentimes it's the small little blog that I had never read before but found a solution or a hint or a, a just a pointer in the right direction uh, those can be really invaluable so if you got something to say uh, don't downplay it because you know a lot of people think oh nobody cares about what I think don't downplay it you might end up uh, uh, producing the one 500 word blog that, that, that solves somebody's problem in a catastrophe. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the heuristics I tend to use is, is it something that I have to Google every time I do it? Uh, or have I spent more than a half an hour trying to figure out how to do it? Like if it's crossed either of those thresholds, then I should write it down when I figure it out and share it out with the world. Um, and actually to this day, the, the single most searched thing that comes up on my website is, is one of those things that I just found and was like, oh, this is cool. And I wrote a post that's basically like, this thing is cool. And it's, you know, 20 words and, uh, gets thousands and thousands of, of uh, hits every day. Uh, very my, mine was like. like how to do a find and replace in Perl regular expressions from the command line. It's like, oh, uh, you know, used to think of myself as like a, you know, deep thoughtful person. But now I know if I had just written more on regular expressions. <laughs> Yeah, if only you could bottle that sort of mojo and just get that out into the world every time you're writing a post, you know. 
Well, that, that's incredibly interesting background. I think um, I, I'm also kind of a little bit interested to hear about your graduate work. So you mentioned you have a doctorate. It sounds like you studied philosophy, which feels like an interesting thing to have led into the career that you had. Uh, and I think it's interesting and, and important to point out because a lot of the folks that I end up working with uh, who are sort of new to tech or interested in getting into tech come from backgrounds where maybe they studied something like um, economics or communications or something just, just completely out of left field uh, as compared to like literally studying software engineering. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people tend to let that sort of get in their way and say, oh, I didn't study this. I can't do it for a career. I could never make it there. Um, can you talk a little bit about your grad work and, and your degree and how you ended up uh, taking the path that you did? So I, I started programming a little bit in high school, again, you know, sort of accidentally uh, and really enjoyed it. But, you know, even if you were to rewind back to my like sophomore, junior year of high school and ask me what I wanted to do, I would have told you I want to be a philosophy professor. Uh, that was that was my goal. Um, and I did my undergraduate and then and paid my way through my undergraduate by, you know, working in the in the computer lab um, and then learned, you know, picked up a little more programming, a little more programming, went off to grad school, paid my way through grad school, partly on grants and partly on programming, uh, got out, taught a little bit uh, and realized, you know, uh, academia is not actually the course for me in, in part because I like to move fast. I like to change idea, change topics. I like to learn new things. And philosophy is very much a long-term, slow discipline. But I never, never really have regretted studying it. It actually, I think, uh, was the best course for me to get into software. It really matched my brain and way of thinking about things more than if I had tried to go through a traditional CS program. Uh, I went to a job interview once and. Uh, and the the guy on the other other side of the desk, who is definitely, you know, hardcore CS kind of person, says to me, "You're applying for a job as a programmer, and you have a philosophy degree. Now tell me why that should make me want to hire you." And I said to him, "Well, uh, you know, the thing about philosophy is that philosophy teaches you to be a system thinker." You know, you have to think about the high level view. You have to think about all the details. You have to be able to work out in logic, the kind of nitty gritty stuff while still sort of holding together the top level picture of, of whatever you're, you know, whatever you're working on. Uh, and, and so you really get used to moving back and forth between very abstract levels and then the kind of nitty gritty of the logic. And, uh, you know, you also learn to analyze other people's way of thinking about things and, and understand what their worldview is and how that gets construed, you know, in their, in their way of thinking and in, in, in the case of philosophy in their writing and their logic in the case of software development by looking at their code, which is, you know, essentially our attempt to deductively build systems. And he looks at me and he says, yeah, you're totally full of it. Uh, so I didn't get that job. Um, but but I honestly really do believe that that was what, for me, what drew me to philosophy was that idea that um, describing the world is shockingly difficult, so difficult that in all of human history, we've produced one after another systems of thought, and yet none of them really adequately capture the richness that we find in the world around us. And in a, in a way, computer science gives us the same opportunity to say, I mean, one of my favorite examples is, you know, we talk about shopping carts all the time. I go to Amazon, I got a shopping cart. I go to Levi's.com, I got a shopping cart, right? But what is shopping cart? I mean, it's fascinating to me that we can like mentally understand what that needs, what that means, right? This is a place where I put the stuff that I'm going to buy eventually. Well, you know, sort of oddly 
drawing a comparison between the bucket that I drop stuff in in Amazon and the actual physical cart that I push around when I'm in the grocery store. And, and then, but, but when we get down to the software definition of it, it's actually a big challenge to sort of define these things. And, you know, systems take a lot of thought to build a, a shopping cart that does what a shopping cart is supposed to do. And that kind of thing, I think it's like in the mundane parts of what we build as developers and what we run as platform engineers, in the mundanity of that, we're actually philosophers, right? We're thinking about systems. We're trying to figure out what the optimal way of realizing this kind of abstract notion I have of, you know, four nines uptime or five nines or however nines are trendy these days, or, you know, a shopping cart or, you know, a tweet, you know, something that's totally abstract uh, that, that had no real meaning before we tried to come up with, with something. And it's a fascinating exercise. So I've always thought that philosophy and, and computer science are really sort of natural colleagues. Um, they're at least the way I, I think about it. Uh, I'm sure some of your listeners are like, this guy is nuts. But, you know, I mean, it's probably true. Um, you know, I, I think that's a really, really good point and a fantastic parallel. Um, there are so many different things I think I could point to as an example of like, hey, we've developed these systems or we, we've attempted to. Uh, and with the um, uh, hindsight that we have sometime down the line, you could see that if we were approaching the problem afresh from today, we wouldn't do it the same way that we did in the past. Probably the easiest example to imagine is HTML. Like if, if we were going to be building websites and designing things for the web today, knowing everything that we know, uh, all of the things that have gone into HTML and like CSS, gosh, uh, would have been very, very different and much more um, sort of thoughtful. But the, the problems develop over time as we get more mature, as we try different things and try new things. Uh, and we back our way into adapting the system to be, you know, as backwards compatible with itself as it needs to be while still pushing the envelope too. And you actually hit on one of the things that, that I like more about computer science's form of philosophy than I did about typical philosophy of philosophy, right? And I shouldn't say computer science, I should say software development as a, as a philosophical practice, right? Is that in philosophy, there very much is an attempt to, uh, and it's built into the system, right? To, to uh, a, a, a big philosopher comes along, has their system, they drop it down and then there's a sort of like hero worship kind of effect where it's like oh we don't change that system we spend our time analyzing that system software being pragmatically oriented uh when things don't work we fix them and there's no not necessarily ego involved in the same sense right it's not like well i can't edit this code because so and so wrote it you know uh or or i've got to retain the the purity of thought behind html it's very much like what do i need to accomplish does this accomplish it to some extent, yes, but it could be better if we made these minor changes. And it's true that we often find ourselves, and maybe that's a good thing about philosophy, you can you can easily burn it down and say, I'm just going to completely start over because there's nothing on the line, right? And in software, in a sense, we have to be more diligent and say, it's better to fix oftentimes than to attempt to replace. Um, but the fact that fixing is a community effort, and, and by community, I mean really in the broadest sense, from large enterprises that are trying to change things to individuals who are, you know, in uh, high school uh, who are learning Java and going, I think I can write a better library to do this kind of thing. Uh, it's a very powerful uh, way of community expression of these yeah. kinds of ideas. Sure. I'd imagine you can relate to this as someone who's building a team and forming a company too. But one of the things that I've struggled with, and I think probably everyone has on some level uh, growing in your career is that early on, I feel like the ten, um, our tendency is to come up with a solution for a problem, assume that what we the first thing we thought of is the best possible solution to that problem. And we build up technical debt as a result of that. And sometime down the line, if someone says to you, 
hey, we have to redo this or your thing needs to change or whatever you built is wrong in some way. It, it feels like a personal attack, but really what it is, is it's learning about that system that you've built and that uh, approach to describing and, and addressing the problem that you have. And I think on a personal level, a lot of people early in their careers tend to take it way, way more as, as a personal attack than like a, this is a growth moment. This is something where uh, having more minds on this thing and more critique is beneficial to all of us. Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the big signs you, that I personally look for in a senior and somebody who calls themselves a senior engineer is, are they okay with being wrong? Um, one of the things that we invented, or invented, one of the things we practiced as a team, even back in the Deus days and through the Microsoft days, and then when we started Fermion, is that uh, when new people come, out, come on board, it is often really good for somebody senior to, when they find something wrong with their code, announce it, right? And say, oh, uh, yeah, that was, I, I found that I, I introduced this bug and thanks for catching it to whoever caught it. Uh, that was totally my fault. I wasn't thinking about it that way, but basically to own up to the fact that they had made a mistake, just as a way of modeling to people, look, uh, uh, your code's not your baby, right? Your code is, your code is not your child uh, and, and not the kind of thing you need to protect and, 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 even you know care for over the long term your code is a thing that has an objective and we all want it to meet that objective and it's in everybody's best interest if we're open about the fact that yeah we might have missed the objective or the objective might have changed and now we have to alter it or you know we're humans we make mistakes we're it's totally cool um and a good software engineer isn't one who never makes mistakes it's one who who is able to find the mistakes and and do better the next time around so i think that's a good marker for seniority for maturity as a as an engineer as an engineering minded person wow fantastic you're, you're such got such interesting perspective and experience here uh really cool to see kind of how you've gotten to where you are and i think this is a good segue into fermion what you're doing now so um let's talk about fermion what's the elevator pitch what are you doing what's the the company accomplishing um for us we became convinced a little while ago that WebAssembly is the next wave of cloud computing and, and by that, we really mean, you know, there, there, there are two dominant strains of cloud computing right now. There's the virtual machine style of cloud computing, and there's a container style of cloud computing. And, and we think WebAssembly really kind of sits side by side with those two technologies in a complementary way. Uh, and we didn't get here by saying, hey, WebAssembly is a, is a neat tool. What can, where can we, you know, where, where, where can we put this thing? What can we... Uh, it's my new hammer. What are all the nails I can hit with it? Uh, we got here by discovering some problems and then saying, well, you know, how do we solve these problems? Uh, really, one of the main ones was uh, as serverless came around, the whole idea behind functions as a service and Lambda and all of that, uh, we found that to be really enticing. And, and one of the cool things about being at Microsoft is you get to talk to customers, you get to talk to internal people, and, and of course you get kind of unprecedented access to a wide variety of different people and, and what they're doing and, and how they're solving problems. And over and over again, we heard people saying, oh, you know, we really like this functions as a service way of writing code, but we find the constraints around it to be really frustrating. And, uh, you know, the, the things that they enumerated on the frustrations were everything from, you know, vendor lock-in and, uh, uh, you know, limitations in the platform to the difficulty in debugging and performance. Performance always comes up, right? That it would be cool if Lambda was so fast that I could run everything through that, or it would be cool if, um, and, and we went, okay, well, you know, we've learned something that developers really love and 
find themselves frustrated with the current implementations, uh, maybe we should see what the root of the problem is there. And what we discovered is that really at an infrastructure level, functions as a service is difficult to pull off. Uh, because nothing starts up terribly quickly. Uh, you know, virtual machines take minutes to start up. Uh, containers take seconds to start up. But to really do FAS the right way, you need it to be milliseconds, right? You need the startup time of the system to be milliseconds, ideally less than milliseconds. And so we started saying, all right, well, that would be an interesting problem to try and solve. Uh, and so we started looking around to see, is there a kind of compute that we could put in alongside a container engine and a, and a virtual machine hypervisor that would be able to spin up and execute a chunk of code very, very quickly and then shut back down. Uh, and the, you know, we, we poked around at a couple of kind of promising technologies and WebAssembly was the one that really rose to the forefront. And this is probably a good place to talk about, you know, what WebAssembly was and what where it came from and what its original intent were. Because as, as I talk about that, then I can you know, sort of connect the dots between that original use case and why it ended up being perfect in our opinion for this kind of next wave of cloud computing. So around 2015, Luke Wagner, who was working at Mozilla at the time, wrote this blog post introducing WebAssembly. Um, and he introduced it by saying, you know, essentially it's a format, uh, it's a, it's a bytecode format and a description of an interpreter that's designed to be run inside the web browser. And you know what the what that early WebAssembly team was trying to do was say you know JavaScript has served us well as a general purpose language for web applications, but there are certain pieces of computing that can be handled better by different languages. Wouldn't it be cool if we made it so that JavaScript in those languages could interact safely inside of the browser? So for example, we can take Figma. So uh, Figma's uh, a uh, what I naively would call a graphical design tool. I apologize to all of you designers who are like, this guy is clearly not one of us. Um, <laughs> but you're, a good uh, company. you're spot on. That's a yeah. Really <laughs> uh, and so it's going to involve a lot of heavy duty number crunching and, and fast calculations are quintessential to making these kinds of UIs usable inside of a browser. And so they wrote a lot of code in C++ and they compiled it to WebAssembly and they exposed these functions to JavaScript and then JavaScript and, and what is essentially C++ plus code operating in a language virtual machine, they could interoperate inside of the browser. And that I think, the, the Figma case, I think really kind of gets to the heart of what Luke and the rest of the WebAssembly team had in mind when they started this project. But when you think about the characteristics you need to make the browser a successful runtime for this kind of system, right? You, you, you can enumerate a couple big and important qualities. The first one being security, right? When we talk about running C in a web browser, <laughs> we have to have a really, really strong security sandbox. In fact, stronger than the JavaScript security sandbox. Because uh, you just cannot risk the uh, a, a either malicious or inept uh, code from, from taking over and destroying your system. Uh, the second one is that we as humans have very low patience. And apparently as web users, we have a really, really low tolerance for waiting. Uh, and the current research says, you know, we have about 100 milliseconds of attention span before we start getting impatient, before we feel that first twang of maybe I should go do go somewhere else and do something else. Uh, so WebAssembly had to have a really, really good performance profile. 
And then, you know, the third one is uh, WebAssembly had to be cross-platform, cross-architecture, in addition to being cross-language, because uh, it would be intolerable to, you know, download Figma and have it say, oh, you're on a Mac M1, sorry, can't run Figma on your on your system, right? Uh, the web long ago, you know, we as, as web users uh, communicated directly to the web create tool creators yeah we don't we, we, we won't tolerate that kind of thing i'm not switching to a different browser in order to load your page i'm not only going to use this page when i'm on windows and not on mac you know that kind of thing and so and and with the rise of arm again as a as an up-and-coming architecture really sort of underscored that and now so there were three kind of big deals there that all stood out to us on the cloud side as we were looking at infrastructure you know starting with that last one it has been a perennially hard story to build Docker containers uh, that will run on different architectures and different operating systems. Uh, even even now, it's it's a pain to build something that you can build a Docker container for Windows and a Docker container for Linux because the system libraries are different, the file system is different, and all of that is exposed all the way up to the developer. Uh, likewise, with uh, I was surprised the first time I tried to build an ARM image for a Docker container and discovered that I actually had to go through and select a different set of libraries, right? So my Docker file was different. And it dawned on me at that moment, like, infrastructure is where we run things. Development is, you know, usually handled by a different department in a large organization. And yet we were bubbling up infrastructure concerns from... Uh, from operations and platform engineering all the way back to the developer. So if a new virtual machine uh, profile pops up and it's cheaper to operate in its ARM, we can't switch to that until we get the developers to rebuild all their containers, which means actual development work and actually rethinking the way they're doing a lot of these things. And that doesn't seem like the most economical way to do things. Um, so there was one where we said, okay, that's a problem we should look into and we should see if we can solve that with WebAssembly differently than we solve it with containers. Um, second one in there uh, was the, uh, the performance profile, right? And again, that goes straight to the core problem we were trying to solve with serverless. How do we get these things to start up really, really fast? Run, the, run them to completion and then shut them down and keep memory CPU usage as low as possible. You know, there's a, a sort of density problem here, right? How many of these things can we run on this, you know, the most Spartan virtual machine or hardware setup that we can pull off? And, and that, that translates directly to, you know, cost savings as far as how much money you spend on your cloud computing. It translates to an ecological impact, how much electricity you're consuming when you need to run your applications. And so we took that one very seriously. And WebAssembly was offering that kind of startup profile. So where we were looking at originally, you know, 100 millisecond startup time, currently where we're at at Fermion on our cloud, on Fermion cloud, uh, we can get from to the first instruction in under a millisecond. So that means we can cold start, right? It's essentially, it's a, a warm start in, in the sense that we do some really neato tricks. Um, but, uh, but you know, essentially we can go from cold start to first instruction in under a millisecond. And that means uh, it is super cheap for us to run something and then shut it down. And then again, that translates to being able to run more of them on the same piece of hardware. And that translates to all kinds of savings. And then the, the first one we hit security, you know, that's table stakes for the cloud world, right? And the, the fact that the WebAssembly model was built with this stricter than JavaScript style of sandbox, uh, and that that sandbox could be picked up from the browser and dropped into the cloud side and have it still function the way it was intended. That was pretty cool. And that was a very, very compelling feature of WebAssembly for us. Wow, yeah, that's uh, quite the problem set that that is um, 
fixes a lot of really hard challenges and, and certainly sounds like a pretty massive undertaking as well. Um, I'm kind of shocked by a, a less than one millisecond cold start uh, because I think a lot of the like functions as a service thing, serverless tools, um, you start to really feel that the the lag you feel as an end user truly comes from that, that uh, startup time in a lot of cases. And when you're getting down to less than one millisecond, you may be uh, impacted way more by like the electrons moving across the wire amount of time as opposed to anything else. Uh, wow. So you've really leveled up the, the uh, problem space there in that case. Yeah. And we, we had I, apparently uh, at, at KubeCon uh, in Detroit, there was a rumor circulating that we had made up the number because it didn't seem real. So let me tell you how we did it. Uh, <laughs> Because um, I mean, and, and part of the reason why was because the browser can't start the WebAssembly runtime quite that fast. But when people say that, they're they're um, it's comparing apples to oranges in a way, right? So for the web browser, the case is you've got to fetch the the WebAssembly module from the server, pull it down to the client, and then real time start up the the interpreter and have it start executing instructions. And then the way that, that a lot of these new WebAssembly interpreters in the browser are working, they start in interpreted mode, and then they start JIT compiling as they go. Uh, this is one of the cool things about, you know, essentially getting to look back at 20 years of Java and, and C Sharp and, and the whole .NET environment and saying, hey, we can learn a lot from the seriously cutting edge engineering that has gone into those environments. But in the browser, then you have to start in slow mode and then JIT compile it and, and speed it up as you go. So the longer it's running in the browser, uh, you know, maybe to, to, a, to a point, the longer it's running in the browser, the faster it's executing. Um, server side, we don't necessarily have that problem. So imagine you're, you're deploying your application into Fermion Cloud, right? So you build your application, you compile it to WebAssembly and you push it up to Fermion. We get it before the first request comes in and we get it, you know, and we have time to, to do a little bit of analysis of it. So we distribute it out with Nomad into the into the Fermion cloud cluster and then uh, optimize it. So you can run a number of optimization tools. Wasm Opt is, is one of our favorites. It's part of the Binarian project. And it'll go through and optimize, you know, essentially it's like recompiling your bytecode from, you know, whatever your, your compiler produced to a more streamlined version of that. Uh, and so you tend to cut the size down. Uh, you tend to optimize some of the looping structures, things like that. Uh, which, as we know from dozens of years of compiler engineering, is actually a real way to save to increase performance. Uh, but then we can also, uh, and we use Wasm Time, which is the Bytecode Alliance's WebAssembly runtime. Uh, it has an ahead of time compiler in there. So we know that once we get it to the exact place it's going to load, we can do some AOT compiling as well and speed up a little bit further. Uh, how fast we can start it up and do all of that while still keeping all the security sandbox in place and uh, all of the various protections and, and uh, uh, you know, exports and things like that that WebAssembly gives us. So we got another one there. Now there was a third trick that we discovered and we use this primarily with, uh, with big runtimes like C-sharp. Um, there's a project called Wiser, W-I-Z-E-R. Uh, and this project is brilliant. Um, the, the authors of this project realized that they could actually pre-load pre and execute a WebAssembly program up until the first instruction that the, that the user has provided and optimize it as they go and then freeze back out that partway initialized program 
and and drastically cut down on the amount of time it takes to start up. And in, in many cases, it actually cuts way down on the memory usage as well, because you can get some of that early memory stuff out of the way. Uh, and so for big platforms like C Sharp and, and .NET, uh, using something like Wiser can cut down both memory consumption and startup time. And so we can start really achieving, uh, you know, I, I hate to say, you know, faster than native. That whole thing is like, you know, again, you're comparing apples to oranges, but you can really achieve some breathtaking numbers when you start. And that's how we managed to get these these things down from 100 milliseconds to 50 to 10 and then down to one and then ultimately, you know, down to sub one millisecond to get to that first instruction that you provided in your in your code. Yeah, wow, that's that's really impressive. Um, is it fair to say too that because you're doing a lot of this stuff server side, you're saving client side computing and therefore energy? Like if I'm if I'm pulling up some WebAssembly something on my phone, if all that com uh, compiling is done before it gets to my phone, I'm probably not wasting my you know. Uh, two percent remaining battery to to get some of this work done. Is that right? Yeah, that and and network transit time and uh, you know packets tra tra uh, traversing the wire and stuff like that. I, I think so. Um, I, I'm always afraid of attempt of, of coming off as greenwashing some of these things, right? Uh, it, you got to take it seriously when you do it and really look carefully at, at if you're offering uh, benefits there. But I do think we are, right? I really do think we are. I think. Uh, WebAssembly as a technology sort of incidentally makes some of these things possible. And that if we're diligent in the way we build these technologies and try not to be wasteful, then everything from cutting down on server consumption to cutting down on traffic over the network to reducing the amount of processing you have to do locally, uh, those should all be all be things that we can realize in in one way or another. And it would make me feel great if we really if if we could stick true to it, right? You know, we we've done it now, but you know, we're in an open beta, right? We're a company that's one year old. Uh if if I can be here in, you know, five years or seven years from now and say honestly to you, yes, we have kept up with that, right? We have improved density. We didn't just make things more and more complex until we were consuming even more computing power than than the earlier technologies. Um, you know, I would feel really great about that. That would be a huge win. Yeah, that, that's one of those things that uh, is a very pleasant potential outcome of, of the approach that's being taken here. It would be super cool to see. Um, yeah. Okay. So, I, oh, please go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say one thing I want to want to make clear here is that, uh, you know, I talk a lot about comparisons between this and container technologies or between virtual machine technologies, but we really don't see this as a replacement technology. We see this as a way to build a certain class of things that will that that were an ill fit in my mind in the container ecosystem and are better served now, right? Or an ill fit in the virtual machi machine system. You know, the serverless functions as a service style being the preeminent example, but we do. Uh, use Docker containers for quite a bit of our stuff. If you played our finicky whiskers game, uh, you know, it's part containers, part uh, WebAssembly microservices. And we tend to think about this, not in terms of zero sum games, like there's got to be a winner. There's got to be exactly one winner, one, one loser, right? It really more about, uh, you know, what is the right technology to solve this particular problem? And, and we make steps toward that. And I think WebAssembly on the cloud is a major step toward solving a, a set of problems that seemed intractable and the ways we were getting around them were highly inefficient and very wasteful of resources like electricity. Uh, but now we have a better way of doing them. I don't think, though, that that'll mean containers will fade into the night or or that somehow virtual machines will go away. What we saw with the rise of containers is virtual machines rose too, right? Uh, both, of, both of the graphs uh, were moving up and to the right at a very high velocity. Uh, and I think that'll continue, that trend will continue, but we'll understand better how to be wiser about the ways we architect things. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. It sounds actually very similar to some of the discussions I've heard recently about comparing just traditional um, uh, serverless functions to um, edge uh, deployed serverless functions where they both have their own use cases. They're not, they don't solve each other's problems necessarily. They're sort of complementary. And if you understand the trade-offs, the pros and the cons and the best potential uses for each of them, uh, then the harmony that you get out of the, the com combination of the two is better than um, you know what we had before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very much agree with that sentiment. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about building with WebAssembly. Um, what what are developers using? Like, what languages uh, compile to this bytecode that can be deployed as WebAssembly? Um, mm -hmm. What's most common? What are things that you're seeing uh, up and coming? Yeah, on our on our website, we track the our favorite language rankings are the Redmonk ones. I love their methodology of using Stack Overflow and GitHub to figure out what languages are trending, and we track the top twenty languages. The Redmonk's top twenty. Uh, pretty diligently, um, because our our view of WebAssembly is that it the, the the fundamental ingredient to WebAssembly's success is developers falling in love with it, right? Uh, so it was it has gone from you know the original languages uh, C had really good support very early, and then Rust came along. Rust also out of Mozilla. Uh, Rust has unbelievably good WebAssembly support. There's a reason why most of the prominent Rust uh, WebAssembly runtimes are now written in Rust. Uh, so th those were a couple of the early languages. And uh, what we've seen, over, the, particularly over the last year, is one after another, language after language kind of falling into place. Uh, you know, Ruby and Python, both of the official projects release support for WebAssembly. Uh, Community has done a Swift to WebAssembly compiler. I love the Swift programming language. I think it's a really cool, well-architected language. So I was really excited to see a good WebAssembly compilation story for them. Um, JavaScript, there are several new uh, platforms to do JavaScript to WebAssembly. Uh, .NET, uh, .NET 7 came out, I think, this uh, just a little while ago. Um, and, and .NET 7 uh, has support for WebAssembly and WASI in it. Uh, and uh, it's, it's amazing. I mean, they, they had Blazor a few years back, and Blazor is a really genuinely well-written architecture. But they rethought a lot of what they had learned out of Blazor and built a, a better WebAssembly uh, target. And the one in .NET 7 is, is mind-blowingly good. Very, very cool. Uh, and then now, you know, the TVM, uh, which is a, J a JVM that supports WebAssembly, uh, we were happy to see that gain. Uh, so I, I've said WASI a couple of times. That's WebAssembly system interface. That's kind of the, the part of the WebAssembly specification that allows it to work well in server environments where you can expose to it file system-like things and environment variable-like things and stuff like that. Uh, when languages support that, then we know we can use them on the cloud side and not just in the, the browser. Uh, so it's been great to see the TVM, uh, you know, a, a working patch to get Java into the uh, Java support in there. Uh, so really, I think we're seeing language after language. Another fun thing is that we're starting to see uh, some languages that are that were devised for WebAssembly first. Uh, Grain is one of my favorite examples of that. There, there are others, but Grain is one of my favorite. It's sort of like a functional programming language that just feels really ergonomic and nice, uh, not not daunting as many functional programming languages can be for people like me who came from uh, object-oriented background. Honestly, uh, Java was one of my first languages. Uh, so it's fun to see those languages kind of come along uh, and, and mature into the ecosystem. 
I think that probably we'll see all the big languages have WebAssembly support by you know the middle of, of next year. And, and really most of the ones that we in particular really care about are well on their way toward full support at this point. Right. Yeah, you've already enumerated a much larger list than I knew about. Oh, and then Go, Go also in there. Go is also in there. I should definitely put that one. But yeah. Right, of course, yeah. Uh, so it's kind of like come as you are, right? Where, wherever you are writing, if your team, you know, if you have a Go team or a Python team or a Ruby team, uh, you can benefit from WebAssembly. Um, so what I'm curious to hear about from you, so you said you're in an open beta. Uh, your your company's about a year old. Um, for the folks who are listening, what sort of uh, problems or companies or engineers or teams uh, should be interested in uh, taking Fermion for a spin? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I see what she did there with the Fermion and spin thing. That was, that was good. <laughs> I like that. Uh, <laughs> I do what um, I can. Yeah, <laughs> actually, actually threw me off guard a little bit. I'm like, uh, that was, was that an intentional pun? Yeah, I guess it was. Yeah. Um, you know, again, the, that sort of uh, functions as a service style is the one that we figured that was the easiest first one to do. Uh, the surprise for us, when we when we started the company, one of the things that, that, that we really felt strongly we needed to do was uh, prove to the world that WebAssembly could be used to solve real problems. So what does one do? Well, one says, hey, I know, let's run our own website on this technology. Let's build a CMS and compile it to WebAssembly. Um, we, we did exactly that. Uh, we built a CMS called Bartholomew, uh, and it's written in Rust. It has its own scripting language. It has, uh, you know, template support uh, from handle, handlebars style template support, all, all the usual bells and whistles of a CMS system. And uh, we, we run our own website on it uh, and, and have had a great time doing so. We've been able to write kind of our own SEO style optimization. We score uh, 99 to 100% on the Google Google PageSpeed test, which of course goes into where you rank in your search engine rankings. Uh, and and again, a lot of this has to do with that super fast startup profile and the, uh, the sort of ability to optimize these kinds of things. Uh, we have been surprised to see that a lot of people then have have said, okay, well, that's a good starting point for me. You know, some of our very earliest users decided to try doing things like uh, running their blog using Bartholomew on WebAssembly, and we were super excited to see them do that. Uh, that, that of course, translated into some upstream patches into Bartholomew, which made that more of a project than we thought it was going to be. We thought it was, you know, a, uh, a thing we built for ourselves and nobody else would find it interesting, and to have other people start contributing was a big, uh, exciting thing. Uh, but a lot of the stuff that we've seen coming in more recently has been maybe a little more uh, serious and thoughtful as people start to play around with uh, different kinds of applications. They can do API gateways, Slack bots. Uh, our, our current Slack server is now swamped with Slack bots because people have discovered, oh, this is a really easy way to build webhook responders and Slack bots and things like that. And then our engineering team is like, oh, well, we'll make a Slack bot for all the things. Uh, and that's a lot of fun, but also a good practical example of something that you can do in a quick afternoon without having to really buckle down and spend a weekend writing something something big or weeks and weeks writing something uh, big. Uh, that's what we kind of hope to see people doing for the next several months. Helps us a lot as, as we're in this open beta period and are trying to understand 
what the shape of these workloads really are. I mean, it's one thing to take your own code and put it into an environment and say, sub one millisecond, we won, right? It's another thing to see how other people build their code and then see it validated or, or disconfirmed in other cases like, oh, well, you know, we hadn't thought about this. We didn't think about building applications this way. We need to, we need to tweak here or understand this use case better uh, and maybe add some tooling or change our assumptions. Uh, but yeah, I think in this in this early wave, these kind of lightweight applications are a great place to start. Uh, and then then as we grow and as Fermion goes from beta into production and we lift some of the memory limits and some of the process time limits, uh, I, I think I think it'll be far more easy to build production grade microservices and web applications using this technology. And that that really is the target, right? Uh, microservices and web applications, server side web applications, those are the things where a lot of us spend a lot of our time. Uh, where the patterns already fit this kind of model really well, where we benefit from the high performance and high security, and where really we don't like wasting a lot of time writing boilerplate code like standing up an HTTP server, configuring the SSL certificates, managing process control, and things like that, all of which are handled by this kind of environment into which you deploy, uh, you know, spin applications. Yeah, brilliant. I like the idea of using small applications as a test bed too, because as, as the developer who has some task to get done, uh, often it is, hey, I'm going to spin up something, write a script to do this thing. Uh, that part, the um, writing the webhook handler for Slack is something that I could probably envision writing in a variety of different ways that I deploy in, uh, deploy in a bunch of different ways. And the difference in things that I would sort of attach to and enjoy are ones where the ergonomics is better for me, where the performance is measurably better, or uh, where something else essentially stands out that makes it, oh, this is actually the way I'm going to do this going forward. This is the right way. And I think inviting your user base to try things and also give you the challenge back of like, hey, I have this thing that I want to do, but it's not working as expected. It's a really smart way to kind of target your user base and also optimize for the things that they want to do. Yeah, I think there's an opportunity to, in, in many early startups, and I love this, there's an opportunity to mutually grow with your users, right? And you can say, here's my good idea, you know, tell me how you want to use it. Okay, you're using it that way. All right, I'll refine my idea to be more like what you're telling me you really want. And and that's a powerful way of finding what I'm learning from the marketing world is called product market fit, uh, where you say, all right, I'm building something that users actually want instead of, I admit, Younger me was much more opinionated than older me is. And younger me would be like, I am going to give you the perfect castle. Oh, you don't like it? Well, that's your problem. What's wrong? You know, I already gave you the thing you need. Uh, and now it's like, no, I, I've, I've got an intuition. Let me ferret out whether other people like that and, and how they might want to use that. And then let them tell me back, uh, I'd really like it if it could do this. That would really... Uh, you know, meet my needs and, and evolve things that way instead of trying to build some kind of massive edifice and then convince people that they need to change their thinking and their jobs to be done to match what I provided for them. That, that was not not the most mature way of me to develop back then. And I'm glad that, uh, you know, again, going back to our earlier conversation of uh, differences between senior engineers and, and, and how to kind of pick them out in the interview, I think that's one of those powerful ways where when you start to understand that software is, is built in service of other people's needs, uh, that's a mature perspective on something. And I hope that Fermion is doing a good job on that.
Yeah. Well, it, it sounds like you've got a great uh, toolkit for approaching the problem set that you're at and, you know, to kind of come full, cir full, full circle on it. Uh, the philosophy there is uh, analyze the problem set that you've got, apply the learnings that you uh, have from the past and iterate on that. And, you know, certainly in the building a company and startup world, uh, being more open to change is going to be beneficial to not only you and your users, but also like the end users, the people who are uh, benefiting from those Slack bots or the websites that are coming out of these CMSs and things like that. Um, yeah, that's magic. That's really cool. Uh, so, so I've got a couple of minutes left here. Before we wrap, uh, I'm curious to hear a little bit about um, maybe what's coming next for Fermion uh, and um, what, uh, what people can do if they want to get started and, and try it mm -hmm. out. Yeah, so a big part of Fermion's existence is uh, rooted in the idea that we want to be good open source citizens on in all regards. So we're working a lot with uh, the Bytecode Alliance, which is sort of the group that produces the reference implementations of this. We contribute to lots of those projects. Um, uh, a really important piece of what we're going to be doing in the next six months is working hard with that group to provide, to, to finish up some of the pieces that are still in flight for WebAssembly. Uh, the component model is one of them, which will allow us to link uh, two binary WebAssembly modules together. As essentially, you can import another WebAssembly module as a library. That's a really crucial piece for us to get from point A to point B in our journey. Uh, and then seeing the, the maturing of the WebAssembly threading specification and the because uh, currently WebAssembly does not have threads. Hasn't been a problem for us in our functions as a service world, but it, if you're trying to write a database in WebAssembly right now, you're gonna you're gonna hit some performance challenges there. Uh, and other other uh, WebAssembly specifications like that, we want to see those kind of push through. Uh, but the platform as it is today is working great. We're really excited about it. The easiest way to get started if you're interested in all of this stuff is to uh, head over to developer.fermion.com or you can just go to fermion.com and follow the links through there. Uh, and you can be up and running, you know, from our, our favorite user story. And I repeat it all the time is we want to make it possible that a developer can go from a blinking cursor to a deployed application in two minutes or less. That means it should be a great experience for the kind of Friday afternoon, got three hours before I'm going to head off. I just want to try something new and play around for a while. Uh, developer.fermion.com is where you can go to, to get started with that. Nice. Yeah, that sounds really slick. Uh, what about your team? Are you expanding? Are you hiring for new roles at the moment? We are, yeah. Uh, if you go to our about page on fermion.com, you'll see our current listing of jobs. I admit I, I have not checked this week to kind of see what's on there. But, you know, we are uh, a growing startup uh, with needs both technical and non-technical. Um, you know, last I checked, we, we did still have a dev, DevOps slash platform engineering role. Uh, and there are probably others at this point on there as well. Sure. And I think probably the good 2022 thing to ask is, uh, where are you hiring from? Are you remote friendly? Are you looking for people in a specific location? You know, it's a funny thing to start a company when we did, because it never occurred to us that at some point we want to, might want to all be in the same place. Uh, uh, so we are, yeah, we are completely distributed. We're we're uh, friendly across many, many time zones. We've got people in Europe. We've got people in Australia. We've got people in, uh, in Asia. Uh, and you know, the company is kind of structured around that. Um, so we're multi-time zone friendly, multi-region friendly, and we actually don't have a real office. <laughs> nor nor do we plan on getting one. Instead, you know, we get together for offsites at various places and, and that, that fits our needs. Sure, right on. That's great. Good news for our listeners too. It doesn't matter where you're sitting right now. Uh, you know, there's, there's potential for a job for you here. Um, what about you, Matt? Where can uh, our listeners find you online? 
So most of the online places, I'm Technosophos, uh, with the exception of LinkedIn, where I'm Matt Butcher, you know, the whole thing of being professional on LinkedIn. Uh, so, you know, Twitter and, and places like that, GitHub, all of those places. Um, you know, I, I blog pretty frequently at fermion.com slash blog. Um, a lot of our team does there. And we've been having a really good time because we've just tried to mix it up a little bit and sometimes do some technical deep dive ones. Sometimes do like, what were we thinking when we decided to do this? You know, this seems outlandish. Oh, I see. Or, you know, things like that. Uh, so that's where I'm most frequently blogging at this point. Uh, but yeah, those are those are good places to find me and also find out more about other people on the team. Cool. And of course, we'll make sure that uh, links to all of this stuff is in the show notes. So if uh, in your podcatcher of choice, pull up the show notes and, and we'll make sure that you can get to Matt and Seam and Fermion and the hiring page and all those things as well. Um, Matt, I guess my last question for you is, um, is uh, if there's one thing you wanted people to take away from this uh, in, in terms of uh, learning about Fermion or WebAssembly, uh, what, what would you say is maybe the TLDR of our conversation for today? Yeah, really, I think the big idea that, that has enamored me now for the last year or two is that uh, there's there's a spot in cloud computing that WebAssembly is really uniquely fitting. And when we, when we talk about this whole kind of next wave of cloud computing thing, we're not trying to come up with a catchy marketing slogan. We're trying to articulate this idea that uh, cloud is still a relatively new thing. And uh, we're, we're learning tough lessons about what's cost effective, what's good programming practice, what are good design patterns, both for platform engineering and developers. Uh, this, I think, is an exciting evolution in the cloud landscape, and I'm really excited about where it's going to go. Fantastic. That's really wonderful. Matt, it's been absolutely a pleasure talking to you today. Uh, I think you're a fascinating person, and you've got a really cool team and a cool product coming out of the world. Um, Thanks so much for coming on and joining us for Software Engineering Daily. Uh, I would be happy to have you chat again uh, at any point in the future. Feel free to hunt us down. We'll have another talk. All right. Thanks again. And thanks for letting me ramble about philosophy. It's like, you know, uh, programming is the job and, and philosophy is the passion at this point. So. That's right. Anytime. We'd be happy to do it again. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you.